we're seeing these demographic changes, we can't just pat ourselves on the back. We have to then unearth some realities with regards to racism that are happening in our midst and figure out how we're going to address these. That's the hard conversation. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashi Denu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, Rabbi Sandra Lawson. How are you, Sandra? I'm good. How are you, Deborah? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be with you. And I'm so happy to welcome our guest, Helen Kim. Helen is the Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Professor of Sociology at Whitman College. And before this appointment, Helen served as Interim Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion from 2018 to 2019. Helen's scholarship focuses on race and American Judaism in the contemporary era. And along with her co-author, Noah Levitt, she published Jew Asian, Race, Religion, and Identity for America's Newest Jews. And her scholarship has been profiled in the New York Times, NPR, and Huffington Post. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Yeah, we're well, so glad you're here. And uh, one of the questions that I always do is I always try to check in with our guest. And so how are you doing today? How am I doing today? Um, I'm doing great. It's, it's wonderful to have time with the two of you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I, I'm in Walla Walla right now, and the sun is out as I look outside my window and blue sky. I would say my mind is on transitions, going into fall and you know thinking about getting my sweaters out and eating lots of pumpkin-flavored carbohydrates <laughs> um, laced with chocolate sometimes. So I'm, I'm, I'm generally pretty good. Thank you for asking. Hey, welcome. You're reminding me of all the pumpkin flavored stuff. Like um, I'm sort of a beer snob. And so pumpkin spice beer comes out. I'm not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> People have very strong opinions on the pumpkin spice question. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're so happy that you're with us. Um, and I wanted to um, start off by asking you to reflect a little bit on the, the premise of this podcast. Um, if it's uh, focusing on how Jewish wisdom and Jewish practice can help bolster resilience, I think we'd love to have a conversation with you about your thoughts on, on, on that very topic, on wisdom and practice and how, you know, what it does for you and what you think it does for the world. Yeah, so when I... Um... When I think about what Jewish wisdom is for me, where I go to, and one of the reasons that I love Judaism um, and the Jewish people is because there's a grounding in texts. And, and maybe I have to kind of explain that a little bit. So the love for me in terms of the grounding of, of Judaism and Jewish practice and texts, I think, is contrasted to my experiences as a second-generation Korean-American um, person in the United States, 
who has really struggled with what wisdom for me based in um, the Korean people and Korean Americans looks like. Um, So where I'm going with this is I, I think a sense of searching for me for wisdom at various points in my life when I really craved that. And I think to kind of encapsulate it, I I remember a very pivotal conversation with my mother when um, I was a young parent and I was really looking to, to wisdom of, you know, all of the peoples that I felt I was a part of and not really finding that for myself in terms of, my Korean heritage and background. So I had a conversation with her and I basically said like, hey, I'm looking to you mom to kind of give me some wisdom because I don't know what that means as a, as a Korean American person. I grew up very assimilated. I didn't speak the language at home. My, my parents were you know, very typical well-educated immigrants from the 60s who basically came to the United States and wanted their children to assimilate as quickly as possible. And what I said to my mom was, it's really easy for me to kind of locate that within Judaism. And she said to me, okay, sort of in her uh, sort of calm and sparse but powerful way, she said to me, that makes a lot of sense that you would be able to more easily locate what you're looking for in Judaism. Because Judaism has a text, it has the Torah. So here was this, I sort of think of her now as this cute little old Korean lady, because that's what she is. This cute little old Korean lady at the time sort of telling me what I was not able to kind of say for myself about my, my, my draw and my connection um, as sort of grounded in a text that I knew that I could always go to for wisdom. And so, so she was saying for the Korean side that there isn't really sort of a central text that you know is part of the material culture of a people that you can go to. So I think um, one of the reasons that I'm drawn to the texts and the material culture as sources of wisdom in Judaism, um, I think sort of needs to be understood in terms of um, other aspects of who I am and other ways in which I try to search for wisdom. I'm just, I'm struck by Sandra, I, I wonder if this is your experience as well, like as, as, as liberal rabbis, especially like a lot of the work is being as a booster, like, yay, there's, it's worth it to be Jewish. Yay. There's good stuff in Judaism, you know, and it's, and it's just so interesting to me that it's um, once you were able to, you understood it and then your mother helped you to conceptualize it more clearly. It's there, no, no boosting necessary, no boosterism necessary. Right. It was more just a a clarity with regards to, I think, why I was and continued to be drawn to what I would see as material sources of wisdom um, in Judaism. So I think 
uh, for me, understanding the why behind that draw it actually draws on who I am as a Korean American um, and my craving for particular kinds of wisdom that are complemented. I wouldn't say that are absent, but that are complemented um, in Judaism. Can you share like one piece of wisdom that has especially resonated with you? Um, yes. And, and this actually also is sort of the theme too uh, of sort of the, the, the balance or the complementing of, I would say, Judaism and Jewish teachings with Korean teachings. So when I was studying uh, for my conversion, the rabbi I was studying with Rabbi Heather Miller basically asked me, so, you know, what are, what are, let, let's talk about some texts that you might want to get your feet wet in. Um, what are you particularly drawn to? And I said, you know, I'm really drawn to the concept um, of forgiveness mm. in Judaism. So how does Judaism understand forgiveness? How does Judaism understand what you need to do in order to enact forgiveness and sort of make good on forgiveness? So she said, well, let's look at Maimonides. So Maimonides it, it, has, I mean, for our listeners, Maimonides in, uh, has a whole book like, of, uh, in the Guide to the Perplex on, no, in the Mishnah Torah. And the Mishnah Torah has a whole book on a whole whole chapter, a whole extended treatise on how to do tshuva, how how to enact forgiveness. Right. So, you know, she assigned me this text and it was, uh, it was really like complicated and specific. Like he, he, he um, had very particular ways of understanding particular kinds of actions and how does how do particular kinds of actions correspond to particular ways that you ask for forgiveness, et cetera. And so I would say that that text allowed me to grow my understanding of Teshuvah. Um, and there were some things where I was just like, I don't know if this if this works for for me at this particular moment in time. But as a text that I can constantly go back to and grapple with, I mean, that is a text that's like right next to my, uh, it's on a, on a bookshelf right next to my bed. So I really appreciated the opportunity to grow my understanding um, through that text. And it's a touchstone that I, that I, that is literally there next to me that I'll refer to, you know, not every day, um, but, but throughout the year and it's just something, it, it's just something I, I need that. I need that. I need that material source during times when I'm not sure about things or I need a reminder or my memory fades. I need that text. Such a powerful example. Yeah. Especially coming out of the high the, the high holidays, you know, spending this whole, the whole month of Elul, um, thinking about forgiveness and reflecting and um, the, the times when we may have missed the mark um, and then going into the month of Tishrei of, of all of the holidays. And now we're in Heshvan. 
and I just listening to you, um, you know, this is when I start to think about like my, my, my goals, my plans, what do I want to accomplish in this year, 5782, now that things are slowing down. Um, and then I can understand, I can totally understand that the, the draw to our text, like when, when I converted, one of the things that I, that I appreciated about Judaism and still appreciate today is I wouldn't necessarily say because we have a text because other people, for me, <laughs> Christians also had a text. That just, like, text just didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the, what I often say is that for me, Judaism had a value system that, that I could subscribe to, that I could grab hold to. It was, you know, like a, a guidepost, you know, like I didn't have to do all of, all of the stuff written down, but it gave me tools um, and ways to, to, to be in the world that I just hadn't really, for a lot of these things I hadn't really thought of. So thank Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Judaism is that for me too. Um, my son Ari was bar mitzvahed oh, a little over a month ago. So as I reflect on my draw to Judaism in terms of text, that's really kind of me engaging with the text predominantly on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, which is great. And I need that. And, and that works for me. Obviously, Ju- Judaism centralizes community and being with others, being part of the people. Um, and I think for me that my son went through a bar mitzvah sort of really expanded and felt very visceral to me the importance of being part of, of being part of a community and making the choice every day to be part of a community and to nurture that community and to grow that community and to evolve that community. There was something that was very not text-based, um, even though, yes, the Torah was there. We had a Torah, I read from the Torah. But it was just being in a space with people and being there for this incredibly powerful ritual, uh, being encouraged to be present. Um, I think in that space, that really became just a very visceral um, a space, a space of wisdom where, yes, Ari was there and he did a spectacular job technically with all of the technicalities, right? He, he just, he rocked the house in that regard. But the, the creation, um, the creation of the community and the thought that went behind, you know, making sure that everybody was present for this ritual was just really powerful. And it sort of became a source of wisdom for me. Helen, I think, um, I think listeners might've heard me say this before, but um, Sandra and I both learned with uh, Rabbi David Teutsch and he taught so powerfully about two axes of community, that there is the horizontal community that you just described, like gathered around Ari and Anas Bar Mitzvah. And then there's the vertical community of who came before us and presumably who will come after us. And so when you were talking about 
your encounter with Maimonides, this 11th century, you know, incredibly important teacher, like I was thinking about cross-generational conversation. And so like your, like your, your stories talk, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about both of these axes and that what it's like when they meet with that kind. And it's, it's, it's so powerful. And also that it requires constant tending. I think that that's really in that that's, both an obligation and God willing, it's something that nurtures us. And sometimes it doesn't nurture us, but we do it because it's going to nurture who comes after us. And that's, that's part of the work as well. Yeah. In our um, parental blessings for Ari, Noah, my husband, who is very community minded. And I would say my go-to is to be less community minded, you know, we didn't write out what we wanted to say. We just sort of spoke off the cuff. And Noah really wanted to applaud and emphasize hard work for Ari. You know, he, he congratulated Ari and said, you know, you, you are here um, in great part because of your hard work. And, you know, I hope that you continue to work hard. Um, so that individual work ethic. And for me, what really was powerful for me was this the sense of community and the sense of obligation and exactly what you're saying, um, Rabbi Waxman, in terms of Ari was standing there and his being able to be there was a result of absolutely every single person in that room and so many other people who Ari has never known. And what I emphasize to Ari is, you know, now that you have become a bar mitzvah, um, you have a obligation to put the hard work into creating community going forward. You know, so Ari, I hope you remember this day as one where you were surrounded by love um, and people came to celebrate you, but also that you remember this day as one where, you, you know, your, your mom was telling you that my hope for you is that you take all of the lessons um, from this experience and you work, you, you choose to work to create communities that are as inclusive as they possibly can be wherever you are. Thank you for that. Um, just to, to sort of jump off of the communal aspect. Um, also, I want to go back a little bit to, to share, to share something with you all. Um, years ago, uh, a friend of mine converted black Jewish queer woman. So there's more than just me, but <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyway. Take off, um, my, off of mute to hear me laugh. Hear me laugh. <laughs> um, and one of the things I talked to my rabbi about is that when she converted, she um, seemed to have a lot of like text information. Like she knew um, things about Judaism that I just didn't know about. And I asked about that. I said, you know, like, do, yeah, I feel like, you know, uh, Donna, that was her name, that her name is her name. Um, like the Donna has this like knowledge that I don't have. And he said, yes, but what you have is understanding, understanding a Jewish community. And I was just like, wow. And it was like, putting the two together um, for me. And I, I still value Jewish community over text. I think Jewish community is like, you know, what connects us, what continues to connect, connect us uh, from the time we left Mitzrayim and to today. And, um, you know, before we start this conversation in the podcast, 
we were talking off offline. And um, another piece of information, I'm kind of fangirling because I um, had deep aspirations to be to get a PhD in sociology for the longest time. Like that was that was the path that was laid out. That's what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to work my tuchus off to get a master's degree and get into a PhD program. And I took obviously I took a detour and I'm not complaining about it. But since I have you here and you are a sociologist and I'm a I'm a huge fan. Um, the Pew study that came out recently, and there've been several studies that have, that have come out looking at uh, Jews of color. I mean, we went from no one wanting to study Jews of color now to there's, there's several studies. And over the past few years, they've, they've put the number of Jews of color at a variety of points, like from 10 to 15 to 20%. And all these studies seem to point that Jews of color are continually undercounted. And the Pew study and just talking about the Pew study and not the other studies and not to discount the other studies, but the Pew study says that like 8% of American Jews are Jews of color, which is a lower number than some of the other studies. And it also says that 15% of American Jews under 30 are Jews of color, um, which is a little or probably a little on the high, high end, but either way, numbers don't matter that much. What's happening is all these studies show that Jews of color are growing in American society. And answer this however you want to, but just what are your thoughts on what it means to be a Jew of color today and, and Jewish community? What does the Jewish community need to know about the, ra- the growing racial diversity of American Jews? And I'm also asking this as the racial diversity, equity, inclusion person for reconstructing Judaism. Um, again, however you want to take that, uh, feel free. Yeah, so I would say just to respond to the numbers question, I think there's an obsession with numbers um, that I think can be harmful. Having said that, I think that there are numbers associated with a, a, a changing demographic within the Jewish population is important. So I don't want to discount the fact that Jews of color count, that that word being interpreted um, in a variety of ways. And I don't want to really just play into the obsession with numbers. So whether it's eight or 20 doesn't really matter to me. I think it's what do we do with a demographic that Um, I think many of us have known was going to grow from the get-go because of what American and sort of the landscape of American racial and ethnic demographics are. So there's that element. Um, I always go to this conversation that um, Noah and I had with a sort of a a senior member of the URJ staff Mm -hmm. At, at a time when Noah and I were thinking about whether or not we wanted to kind of do the study that we ended up doing that became the book situation. Um, so back in the mid 2000s, when we were looking for data on race within the American Jewish community, we like, we went everywhere. We went to Brandeis, we went to 
um, University of Connecticut, Miami University, we asked sort of all the major kind of institutions that were the repositories for large-scale dem demographic data on the American Jewish community. Basically, hey, what do you have with regards to race? Um, and the response was always, you know, we don't really do that. So we happened to be in New York, and uh, this was in 2008. Um, and we just decided to go into the URJ. So the headquarters, them, of the, the headquarters of the Reform yes, Judaism. Yes, the Union of Reform Judaism. You know, what What do you, what What sorts of data do you have? Um, you know, we were thinking like, eh, it's the URJ, you've got to keep some data, um, probably at the congregational level. And we had a meeting with a senior member of the URJ staff. And we just point blank asked this person, like, what do you, do you keep data on race? And this individual kind of paused. He sort of thought about it and he was very like um, uh, pensive in his response back to us. And he said, you know, we don't. And he paused again and he said, and I think the reason that we don't keep data on race is because we would then have, if we did, we would then have to acknowledge that racism exists within the American Jewish community. Wow. Yeah. So this is, you know, behind closed doors. Um, and he was being very honest with us. And I will never forget that conversation. It was just so, it was so mind blowing to us at the time. And, and so honest, you know, he was basically saying it exists, um, but we're just not, we're not saying that it exists. So I think, you know, fast forward to 2021, yes, we count, we keep data. Um, and I think if we're to take this individual sort of uh, words to heart, you know, knowing our numbers um, might cause people to sort of say like, hey, let's congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. We're compositionally diverse. But that's always accompanied with, yes, we then have to acknowledge that certain social realities are happening within our midst. That to me is the underlying sort of big question is, if we're seeing these demographic changes, we can't just pat ourselves on the back. We have to then unearth, I think, some realities with regards to racism that are happening in our midst and figure out how we're going to address these. That's, that's the hard conversation. I hope we can all have an in-person conversation because that's just pretty... I'm just kind of, I'm not sure what to do with that, but wow. Um, you know, what's interesting to me that all I can think of right now is the number of people who say that they don't like, I don't want to get caught up in the numbers either, but they don't believe the numbers because they, they don't know, they never see Jews of color, um, but not recognizing that their worlds are so segregated that that's probably why you don't see Jews of color. Um, 
you know, and we still have Jews of color, we still have Jews, excuse me, Jews who are white that don't acknowledge that racism exists in the Jewish community. Uh, because if they did, what does that say about their community? And what does that say about them? Um, and one of the things I've been trying to do is to um, get people to understand that racism doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It's not like the worst possible for many Jews, for many white people, racism and racist is like the worst thing you could possibly call someone, but it's a reality of our society. And there's no way that, that there's no way that you, if you, there's no way that you could have grown up in an American society and not have been affected by racism in some way, shape or form. Um, That means somebody who projects racism and somebody who receives racism and and back and forth and back and forth. Um, Yeah. But um, this is why I love my job. (laughs) I love being able to have conversations with, with Jews of color because I learned so much. And I think, I mean, it's like that's so much of the work that you're doing already is both about, however, relationally Mm -hmm. surfacing the racism and then thinking exactly as Helen suggested about like, so now what, you know, that it's like, you know, it's, it's this two part thing. It's all in the service of vigorous community and vitalized individuals, you know, and, and, and just like Maimonides had particular, I mean, the Chuba conversation, Sandra often teaches on Chuba, like it's, it's exactly the right framing for this mm-hmm. conversation as well, like both, the, both the acknowledgement, and then the atonement, and then the, hopefully the generativity that emerges. Yeah. And also, like, can one of the, when I was uh, getting ready for this podcast, I found an article where um, you had a conversation with your son, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Ari. And in the article, you were talking about the book and there was, there was a lot in there, but you know, that he came to you and, and you, and talked about what Chinese Americans look like mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it broke your heart. And you talked about all the internal feelings that came up with this sort of racist comment and how you were going to handle it. And I think you handled it very well. Um, but that is, sh- that shows how we learn racism. You know, in his mind, you're not you're not Chinese. You're you're Korean, and he didn't get it. And if you were uh, a different parent, and maybe a different a different race, you who knows how that would have been handled. So this is a kid who's who's growing up Jewish, um, uh, and you know, I don't know what what your what your son's experiences are in Jewish community, but you know, this is you know a kid with like two you know very progressive parents, one one parent of color, um, and still has still grew was learning racist stuff about about people. Um, when so when people say things to me like. I'm not racist. Or I don't have racism on my body, whatever. They're not thinking about those kinds of things. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you, if you want to talk about like, you don't have to talk about your, your son in that context, but like, you know, maybe what that, what, what that was like, or maybe your own experiences around this in Jewish community. Sure. Yeah. There are a couple of things that um, as you're speaking, kind of I'm, I'm latching onto. Um, one is that incident where Ari was, five or six he was in first grade and and he reported on a playground and you know playground racism basically where people are going on and you know pulling pulling the eyes and doing the slanty eye thing um so he comes home and he talks about that and and he's just really curious like why what's going on here and that's when I 
you know, I knew that was coming and I just got enraged. Relatedly, um, I'm reminded of something that my colleague, John Johnson, who is the vice president for diversity and inclusion here says about bias, which I think could be extended to racism. Um, he says, bias is the water that we all swim in, not the shark. So as you were talking, Rabbi Sandra, it's just everywhere, right? How, how could we expect it not to be given that this the foundation of, you know, modern American society is built on racism. Um, so to say that there are spaces that exist that are immune to that would just, would just be not a social reality. So if that's the case, you know, and we have things like the pew, we have things like the experiences of my son, um, we have my own experiences in Jewish spaces, um, why are we why are we running away from these realities? Why are we choosing to run away from them? Why don't we choose to you know, run towards them and try to do something about them to become uh, to use a, um, a term that I think is really powerful anti-racist? Yeah. So I get a, a, I get asked questions a lot, especially to young, young Jews of color. And sometimes by, I get questions from white mothers of, of kids of color. And, um, you know, young, the young people who reach out to me on the various social media platforms, one of the things they ask is like, how do I respond, um, you know, to microaggressions? How do I respond to racism? And as you know, um, we're all above a certain age that like, you know, there, there's, there's, there's no right way. Like, you know, sometimes you might, we might respond a particular way and that might work and other times it might not. Um, but um, for those who are listening, if you can offer some advice, um, you know, what it's, what, what are some things that you could tell people that they can respond to some mic microaggressions or, or racism? I think one of the things that just comes to my mind and I'm trying to do this in the spaces that I walk in especially with students, is to say, if you are somebody um, who experiences microaggressions or aggressions on a daily basis, and you're, you know, say within an educational institution, and we're trying to think about, like, what do you do about those? Um, this idea of allowing the person who is the recipient of those either aggressions or microaggressions to determine on their own, how they want to respond. Um, there's something about that as we're talking that um, I'm, I'm just kind of uh, latching onto um, to say like, yes, we can, you know, talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and, 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 and give like rules for how we need to respond. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm really sensitive to the, to is to, make sure that we honor the agency of the individuals who are the ones who are constantly microaggressed or aggressed to, to respond on their own terms. So there's something about that that's about agency mm -hmm. um, that is complex, I yeah. would say. What, what I love about that, Helen, is it takes me back to the conversation about Maimonides at the beginning, like you were talking about what it was like to read Maimonides and it's, and it's um, rigorous, it's demanding, it's sometimes uncomfortable, 
you know, like there's a lot of steps and what you're suggesting is like co-creation here, you know, like, like that elite prescription that he was offering, but then also with the, with the people who are harmed, you know, using the cudgel that Maimonides is and also changing Maimonides to, Mm -hmm. so that it, that it opens up and it captures and it empowers their experience. Right. It's, it's, the sort of the rigor with the recognition of the harm and the asking for the forgiveness, but also to say for the person who is, who is harmed. Yeah. Just wanting to be sure that that person's sense of agency is intact. Mm -hmm. And that may not be like, I'm going to forgive you. It's not, it may not be in that moment. Like, Oh, everything is fine. You know, let's move on. Um, I forgive you. It might not be that. And I think to really sort of, in terms of the co-creation, that piece is particularly on my mind in this moment that we are in, which is not to say that it's so unique um, from other historical moments of racial injustices, but I think it's, it's something that I think about as particularly in a pandemic, with aggressions and microaggressions that continue to happen all the time and what it means for those people who are kind of walking in those spaces with their guard up all the time, mm-hmm. you know, their guard is up all the time. So already from the get-go, whatever space they're walking in, there is a sense of agency or humanity that is not present that might be present for others. So if we recognize that there's an inequity from the get-go, how do we think about responses and systems and structures that try to honor the humanity of that of the of people who are walking into those spaces, you know, in this way versus in this way? Yeah. So uh, uh, Helen just like put her like the, the, put her hands in front of her face versus like an open-hearted, yeah. expansive, at ease, at ease. Yeah. Mm. So that's sort of the fifty million dollar question, which I don't think is actually is not that difficult. I think we just have to be willing. Yeah. Um, to 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 enact that. Oh, thank you so much. We're, we're so grateful for this opportunity to talk to Helen Kim for this wonderful and rich discussion on wisdom and on practice, on racism, and on empowered responses to racism. Thanks for being with us today. Yes, thank you. And for more information on today's episode, you can look on Hashivino's website, which is hashivino.fireside.fm. You can also find more resources on reconstructingjudaism.org and on Ritual Well. And you should go without saying, please subscribe, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rabbi Sam Lawson. And I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashi Dainu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience.